This is EJ Lawless from HR Tech GTM, the only podcast and best podcast focused on the HR Tech future of work marketplace and how companies are bringing their companies to market. Founder and CEO of Olaris, Joyce Zhang Gray. Joyce, thanks for joining me today. Would love to hear more about what you're up to. What are you working on? Thanks so much for having me, EJ. I'm really excited to be on the podcast. So Alaris is a global expansion marketplace. We help companies based all around the world find, hire, and compliantly pay local sales and go-to-market talent in the U.S. And our clients include companies headquartered in India, China, Singapore, Israel, Australia, Canada, you name it. So would you mind sort of giving an overview of your background and your co-founder's background and all of sort of the international experience that you have? I do think it's a fantastic background that really explains a lot of the story as well. Prior to Alaris, I had spent my career working in inter- at the intersection of international business and technology and international policy. So I have a background in both business and public policy for my master's degrees. And my co-founder and I met at Harvard as undergrads. We both studied international relations, and we were both really enthusiastic about this space, even from a long time ago. So post-college, Nick actually became a U.S. diplomat and served in the Middle East during Arab Spring, also ran a lot of initiatives for the for President Obama's Innovation Fund, serving emerging markets and entrepreneurs in emerging markets. And I worked for the Federal Reserve straight out of college in financial regulatory reform policy and the Euro sovereign debt crisis policy. And afterwards, I was actually hired by various American tech companies to run global expansion for them with a particular focus on Asia and Asia Pacific, but also later worked for the World Bank in East Africa and have advised startups and founders all over the world. And so both Nick and I had a very global perspective. We were on the ground working with companies and entrepreneurs in various markets and just started to realize how much uh, innovation and how much ambition there was outside the U.S. and yet how many of them were really bottlenecked in their growth by the fact that they didn't have local connections and didn't have a local know-how to effectively expand into the U.S. and by extension into the global markets. Got it. Thanks for that introduction. What inspired your interest in in global markets and sort of looking outside of the U.S.? I think for me, it was pretty personal. I was born in the D.C. area and my parents were immigrants from China. And so I think that combination meant I was often exposed from a very early age to, well, certainly to different languages. And, you know, as a kid, I perhaps didn't appreciate it as much as I do now as an adult, being forced to you know, speak another language when all of your friends could just speak English and, and, and your parents made you do extra homework. But I think that it was just part of, you know, growing up as a second generation immigrant and also growing up in with friends and other people who are really involved in policy and public service. I think service to the nation was something that was very important to me. And also just being able to blend the different elements of my culture and serve as a bridge between the U.S. and Asia and other markets. Got it. So so you were able to take your sort of personal upbringing, your personal experience, and turn that into this opportunity and sort of do it, I'd say, probably at one of the best times to launch something like this. I I think so. And one of the things that makes me feel particularly proud of the work that we're doing with Alaris is 
you know, globalization and globalism has faced a lot of criticism, I think, in the last couple of years. There's been certainly a backlash when it comes to protectionism and, in, in, you know, different countries, whether it's the UK with Brexit or even in the US when we see the, the polling data of um, people's disillusionment with the direction the country is going. I, I think that our solution is actually something that is mutually beneficial for everyone. You know, there there's an old John F. Kennedy quote about a rising tide lifts all boats. And we truly feel like that's what we're doing with Alaris. We're helping emerging markets and those um, who are constrained in their development have, you know, bigger markets and bigger opportunities for their local entrepreneurs, while at the same time, we're reshoring jobs to the United States, especially to the many pockets of the labor force that are highly talented, but often overlooked, in particular in the Midwest and other states that are seeing jobs kind of disappear because those jobs are either getting automated or they're getting offshored. So it gives me a particular sense of pride um, and feeling of purpose that with Alaris, we can do that. And it's a good way for me to combine both my personal and professional experiences. That's great. What inspired you to work on this? I think, well, as many founders experience the problems that they're trying to solve for, I, I actually had a lot of these issues myself when I was the head of global expansion or go-to-market for various tech companies trying to open up overseas offices. So my parents immigrated to the U.S. from China. I have the privilege of being a heritage speaker of Mandarin. And so on some levels, when American companies had me opening up Asia offices, they would just assume that you know, you speak the language, so you must have the ability to, to open up offices. And while it's true that someone who can speak a local language has, a, has an advantage, it's still true that if you're a foreigner to any country, um, just navigating the complexities of how to figure out, you know, the right talent pools to tap into, how to um, incorporate a legal entity or set up payroll or figure out how to properly brand and offer the right compensation or even to, you know, post a job description that sounds reasonable and appealing in the local market is actually quite the challenge. And so I experienced this myself and I thought there has to be a better way because companies are building overseas teams and offices at an ever faster rate. And in particular, when I was working with many of these companies overseas, I saw that the desire to come to the US market was actually quite strong. But if, it, if you think it's difficult for an American company with a lot of resources and the incredible, incredible branding and sort of soft power of the United States, if you think of that as being challenging, opening an office, let's say in India or in Brazil, then you can only imagine how much harder it is for the reverse to happen. That, that's a really interesting point on other companies opening up in the U.S., and that comes to one of my questions about timing. So what are you seeing change in the marketplace? Why is now the right time for Alaris? What is what is happening that you're seeing and observing? So now is the right time because I think you have this wonderful confluence of different forces. One is, of course, the the high amount of capital that has been flooding into the emerging markets, most specifically Asia, but you also see it in Latin America, the Middle East, you know, Eastern Europe. And many of these countries just have basically companies that have outgrown their borders. You know, let's take Singapore as an example. It's a country of a little over 5 million people. It punches far above its weight, but as a market, it's still quite small. So many companies have a global ambition from a really early stage. 
And the desire actually to become a global company is quite universal. And the American dream is really strong. But I think up until this point, most companies didn't have the capital or the tools to expand overseas. So that also brings me to my second point, which is in addition to the capital flooding into these markets and the desire to deploy them globally, the adoption of remote work and the future of work has made it really possible for companies to leapfrog conventional setups of brick and mortar um, branch offices and instead to hire a fully distributed and remote team. So I think that the adoption of remote work as not just a branch office or an offshoring exercise, but actually a core part of a company's go-to-market strategy and its core strategy in general has really paved the way for this. Got it. So let me let me think about that a little bit more because I think that's an interesting point I haven't considered before. So other companies, you know, U.S. companies going abroad when Indeed's gone abroad or have worked at other startups that are going abroad, you need this sort of physical presence. And so you need to figure out the logistics of how do we staff an office how do we make sure everyone has food? And it adds to logistical challenges of actually just entering the market. And what you're saying is now with remote work, that basically doesn't have to happen. So now instead of figuring out, okay, I need talent and I need a place for the talent to be, you just need to figure out the talent and who is the right people, who are the right set of people to help you bring the company to market. Is that right? Exactly. And I would say the physical problems, uh, food and you know, staff stocking the office pantry is probably the easiest problem to solve for. The bigger problems come down to things like visas and immigration. You know, you have to get a business visa, you have to go to the embassy, you have to uh, apply for for all sorts of different legal and tax statuses in the local countries. You have to figure out the local, you know, there's just a bunch of things that you have to do before you can even physically move your management team to a country to even build that, build the branch office. And then on top of that, you have, you know, the recruiting element and everything else that comes with it. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So it's not just obviously the logistics of offices, which sound like can be solved relatively straightforward, but immigration, which can be an opaque process. And I think your point about the capital outside of the U.S. is interesting. I think I read somewhere today that 50% of new unicorns are happening outside of the U.S. And so it seems just like this huge global expansion of technology and startups happening everywhere else. Uh, and I think the U.S. is still sort of a desirable market to go into. Are you right now? Where are you focused? Is it really helping companies outside of the U.S. go to market in the U.S.? Is that the main focus right now? How how does that part of the the marketplace work? Yes, that that is our main focus. We're a two sided marketplace, of course. So on one side we have companies or employers, and those are all headquartered outside the U.S. And on the other side we have local talent that's based in the US. And so that local talent is on the Alaris platform, at least they're all go-to-market talent, sales and business development. And for the employers, they're based all over the world, but they want to enter this one unified market, which is the US market. And we're really focused on this um, segment because it's actually very underserved. And to your point, about 50% of the unicorns are built outside the US at this point. But I would say probably 90% or so of Silicon Valley tech firms are still focused on the 50% of unicorns and companies that are in the US. And most people are missing this much bigger picture of companies outside the US that want to come in. Yeah, that it's just it's sort of contrarian in a couple of different ways that I think every time we talk I get to appreciate a little bit more. So one is your focus on helping companies enter the U.S. market. The other 
this sort of underserved sales business development go to market staff because a lot of the I'd say cross-border services have been people in the U.S. or other places looking for development talent. Just I don't even know if it's a lower cost anymore at this point, but just more development talent. And that means that the go-to-market people in the U.S. are largely being sort of ignored. And you're looking at this and saying, hey, actually, here's a big opportunity. There's a huge expansion of companies outside of the U.S. that are growing. The U.S. is maybe there's still the top addressable market for most of these companies. But they don't know how to do it. The culture is a reason is a reason why immigration visas are another reason why. And so you're sort of identified this contrarian opportunity is what it feels like to me. Well, I, I think so. For for us, it doesn't feel contrarian, but I think generally, given that the paradigm of virtual work in the past was about cost arbitrage and outsourcing because you know, Eastern Europe or Asia has lower cost of developer or other talent. We're really inverting that paradigm on its head and saying that actually remote teams are about just having access to better talent, more markets, and having a more competitive global global labor market and global business market. So for the talent on our platform, actually, in the past, they might be constrained by their own geography and their own networks. And I, I grew up in Michigan, and my co-founder actually grew up in Wisconsin. And I think this point is particularly salient for us, having grown up in the Midwest and seeing that you know if you're willing to move from the metro Detroit area to New York, your job prospects increase 10x, if not more, even though you as a person haven't fundamentally changed. And that didn't feel fair to us. And now with remote work, we really think there's a huge opportunity to let everyone have access to these global jobs. So instead of your local maxima, you're actually looking at your global maxima for what you can earn and what you can do in your career. Got it. That, that's interesting. That makes sense. In terms of your double-sided marketplace, what is the hard side of the marketplace? Is it more important for you all to get talent or to get employers? Obviously, both are important. But which one are you focused on? Which one do you find more challenging right now? We focus on both. As you said, both are very important to us. I think it's sort of a classic chicken and egg problem. At the beginning, if there were no jobs, then the talent wouldn't find it very interesting. And of course, for the employers, if there were no talent, then they wouldn't find it interesting. But we did focus at first on because we had some of the existing relationships and many of the relationships with our clients are ones in which it does take a lot of trust. It takes a lot of relationship building because of the markets that we're in. People trust, you know, referrals much more than perhaps like email marketing or SEO. Many of them can't even use Google, for instance, or they don't search in English. So we first secured some relationships with just leading tech companies based all over the world who were interested in coming to the US and were exploring a lot of different avenues. And then we started to really build a platform and pitch great talent on these opportunities to see you know, whether or not there would be the match. And now we're actually starting to see that the talent piece is increasingly becoming challenging because there are more and more companies interested. And, you know, I suppose it's a combination of a very robust and somewhat tight labor market now. And also the fact that people still have to wrap their mind around whether or not this is the kind of work arrangement that makes sense for them. Because international work is not always uh, the easiest. You have time zones you're dealing with, you're dealing with cultural barriers sometimes, and even language differences. And so finding people who are not just willing, but actually enthusiastic about taking on these types of jobs are 
you know, it's an exciting challenge, but it's one that I foresee will continue to increase. That makes sense. That's interesting. You know, as you talk about the, the talent and the motivation and some of the differences, what are you seeing as the motivation for talent to enter your marketplace? What, what are they excited about when they join Alaris? I think for many of them, they're just excited about growing their careers internationally. And I, I think back to a lot of conversations I had with friends, even in Michigan, where you know I've been very privileged and lucky to have traveled to, at this point, close to 100 different countries. And my parents are immigrants. And so I think I grew up thinking very globally in terms of where my career could go or what I could do. But many of my um, friends and you know, others might not have had access to a lot of those opportunities. And they they thought it was very enviable in many ways. And I realized that actually these global opportunities are available and you don't even have to relocate and become an expat. You can work for these companies from the comfort of home, especially now with remote work, and you still have access to these global perspectives. So I, I think for many people in our talent pool, it's just the exciting globalism of the jobs, which also then ties into things like the learning curve that they have or the opportunities for growth and promotion. And in many ways, promotion means that if the company does well, then they do well because they're inherently one of the first people in the US. So they're effectively serving as a regional or country manager and can in many ways grow into that role. So they're really exciting opportunities. And I think that for many people, they're just drawn to that vision and drawn to the impact they can have. Okay, so that makes sense. So these people, these go-to-market people, they're one of the first, if not the first employees of these companies in the U.S. The product is relatively set. but So in a sense, they get to be their own entrepreneurs, their own startup founders of bringing these companies to the U.S. market. Is that right? In many ways, yes. Because as I often point out to the founders themselves, they might have product market fit in their home countries, but if they're in another market, then they inherently don't have product market fit anymore. And so finding that positioning, that angle, even the pricing and taking advantage of having a local who has knowledge and direct lines of communication with their target customer segment is incredibly valuable. So for many of them, they put a lot of uh, trust in that U.S. representative in their you know, sales representative, country manager, and more and more of their, as more and more of their revenue comes from the U.S., they really start to position a lot more of their product development and overall company strategy towards that person's objectives and feedback as well. Okay. So in the beginning, the person's bringing this product to market over time as they're successful, they start to influence sort of, I'd say back at the headquarters, what products are developed, they change how things are developed for the local market. Yes. Potentially. Okay. Interesting. So I, I know that multi, multicultural workplaces can present different challenges. How do you deal with the education side of this? How do you help the talent understand what it's like to work in a multicultural workplace if it's their first time? How do you help the employers if this is their first time as well? You know, I think that this is an ongoing question, EJ, and I'd love any thoughts from you or other listeners to the podcast. I think that you know, even in spite of the fact that my co-founder and I spent our entire careers in diplomacy or international business, the the fact that there are still, you know, constant misunderstandings between people of different cultures and backgrounds, even in our own country, goes to show that this is a this is an ongoing discussion. So in terms of educating both sides, I think 
one of the main things we emphasize both through the product onboarding as well as in our communications, both electronic and verbal to both parties is to really, you know, try to approach all of these interactions in good faith and try to just basically give everyone the benefit of the doubt because people have different styles of communication. Some, some cultures it's perceived to be very negative to, you know, push back. And so rather than pushing back, people sort of end up not saying anything or what might be perceived by others as ghosting. And, and, you know, other cultures have just very different norms. And then still it's even diverse within a country because it's just based on someone's personality. Are they a little bit more introverted or extroverted? But we try to remind everyone that people are on the platform and they want to meet in the middle because they have the best of intentions and because they do truly want to work together. And having everything put in that perspective or from that framework does help it, it isn't easy, as you pointed out, but certainly giving other people and yourself grace when they're and cutting someone else slack it really goes a long way. How how explicit do you get in sort of talking about cultural differences? You know, I I work in a multicultural office, and I've noticed that people in Europe are sort of being very explicit about Germans are this way and Dutch people are that way. And I think as an American, it, it's sort of like, okay, we're not going to talk about things in that way. Like we can understand there's differences. I'm just curious, like how direct can you be in communication in a way that actually makes sense? Because I think, as you said, even within a company, within a cult and within a culture, people are different uh, and there's not one way of doing things. But I think what you also highlighted, which is that how direct one can be also sort of has different connotations. And so I'm curious, like, do you have a formal education pattern or right now is it really approached on, on sort of like good faith? And I, and I wonder about how you think about scaling that aspect of it too. So we do have training and onboarding. So it is codified both in our product as well as in our onboarding process. But to your question of how explicit can we be, we have some content both again on our site or in our training materials that will coach HR professionals in other countries about questions they cannot ask in the US. Just to give you an example, in China, resumes have people's height, weight, marital status, picture, and blood type. That's the okay. standard. <laughs> okay. That, that, <laughs> that is very is, different. Yeah. It is very different. That is the standard actually format for resumes. And in the US, that would be horrifying. <laughs> Also, the, the blood type question, I've actually never gotten a really clear answer on why blood type, but some I've heard certain reasons. Some people said, oh, you know, if, if there's a problem and they need a transfusion, then the information is there, <laughs> which struck me as a very strange piece of information to give your employer. But then the other one that I've also heard is, oh, sometimes people think that your blood type, blood type corresponds to your personality type. So similar to a Myers-Briggs test, people want like to, you know, have their team be a mix of like AB and A positive or O negative blood types. So anyway, I've, I've never really gotten a clear answer, but the point is that there are very, very different norms and HR departments will ask questions that in the US would not be perceived to be, you know, frankly legal. And so we do have content. You can check it out on our website, alaris.com slash blog, where we um, have certain content translated into different languages to help and and we require HR departments to read it before they go into interviews. So there are certain things where we can be very explicit, but then other parts that are, you know, harder to navigate, I would say that it also comes down to the type of 
the, the screening and curation of our marketplace. The types of people that we have on our platform are those who generally have a pretty global background themselves, or at least an interest in it. So, you know, based on our own experiences, having worked for the State Department and the World Bank and other um, institutions, we had seeded our initial talent pool with a lot of people kind of with those backgrounds or graduates of, you know, MBA programs, but who also spoke foreign languages or were first, second, or third generation immigrants. So people with that type of background or experience do tend to be pretty good at self-teaching a lot of these things, or if anything, they're managing expectations and the multicultural workplace dynamics much better than we could, even if we were trying to coach them. So that's another area in which we really leverage the uniqueness of our talent pool to manage. That makes sense. That that makes sense. Thinking about the employer side of this, what size company are you targeting now? Or like, what's the profile of the company that you're targeting now that really sort of gets a lot of good benefits out of Valeris? And then how do you see that changing and expanding over time? So that varies by market. For China, we tend to see very late stage, sort of growth stage slash publicly traded companies. And part of it is because the domestic market is so large that people don't need to look for global expansion until much later stage. For other markets like, let's say, Israel or Singapore, we see companies that are generally in the U.S. would be seen as, you know, seed or series A companies looking to expand here. And I I think that the general mode would probably be companies around series A or series B, if we were to think of them from a venture um, standpoint. And they would be uh, well-funded enough to want to make a big push and take a big swing for the fences, but also early enough where they do need a lot of help and it's still for them, you know, quite, it's still quite exploratory, but they know that it's a matter of almost survival in some ways or, or being able to break out of the ranks of just being a small domestic player and becoming a global player in order to, you know, set up shop in the U.S. That's our sweet spot right now. As we continue, perhaps we'll work with a wider range of companies, including some later stage ones, but the ones that we think are most excited about us and that we also find to be most meaningful to work with are the companies that are a bit earlier stage. And for them, this is the US is a really central part of their strategy. And, you know, they also really rely upon having a local partner like Alaris to make sure they'll be successful. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. So I think that mental model you have, the size of the domestic market probably makes a lot of sense and when people would think about the US or not. You know, one of the things I feel like I didn't really do and it's sort of a disservice for you is is your background is actually really incredible. What is Alaris's business model right now? So our business model is that we actually serve as a sort of one-stop shop for global expansion. So you can think of our product as being three different pieces, which also corresponds to the business model. So so the first piece is the online platform for, for seeking and screening and interviewing talent. So that's the marketplace subscription fee that we charge per month. It's $1,500 US. The second piece is once the booking is made, there is a transaction fee just to book and confirm and hire that person on the platform. So that's like the marketplace success fee. It roughly equals 10%. And then finally, for our ongoing payroll and compliance fee, we serve as the employer of record. And so if companies continue to pay for their employees through us, it's at a continuous 5% of payroll fee on a biweekly basis. Got it. In terms of compensation, how common is it for 
these non-US firms to give employee stock options, which we see pretty commonly in the technology world in the US. It's not as common, or um, if they do, it's these companies would usually then incorporate in the US. It becomes much easier to issue shares. You know, for a, for a whole host of reasons, a lot of international companies and even just the way that a lot of tax law is structured would find it very challenging. And a lot of the talent is actually more interested in the base salary and commission because, you know, and the equity is uh, something sales. that they, because they're, sales, they're people. sales people, exactly. And then equity is something that they'd like to have down the road. But I think that for many of the companies that, as well as for the talent, it's pretty early stage and speculative and just full of, you know, regulatory pitfalls. So they, they tend to avoid it until later on. Got it. Okay. So early on, especially with say maybe a company that is in that seed uh, series A type stage, it just makes a lot more sense to focus more on the salary plus commission part of the, the compensation and worry about whatever equity may exist as the company gets bigger and actually sees true success in scaling out in the U.S. Yes. Got it. What are some of your top of what are your some of your challenges top of mind going forward sort of over the next year? Like what what are you thinking about right now in terms of growing Alaris? Well, I think it's always this question of, you know, how do we grow the supply and demand side of our markets in a way that's scalable, that's efficient, that and that at the same time still preserves the great um, you know, feedback that we get. We have a very high net promoter score and the people who've worked with us really love it. But as we scale, we want to make sure to maintain that quality of experience while having you know ever higher volume. So that's certainly top of mind. And then the other piece we're considering is just how do we really become thought leaders? Because we are defining a new category and it causes a lot of confusion and head scratching right now because we're, again, inverting that paradigm of what remote work was originally conceived of. And we're, you know, helping people all over the world, hire people all over the world. And I think it's just, we need to come up with easier and better ways to digest that information and to stay ahead of the curve so that we still remain at the vanguard as this becomes more and more commonplace, which I do believe it will be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you and I are talking about this. I think we sort of get it, but I imagine that the the window about how people think about this, the companies that are coming from outside of the US and entering the market, it's just really on their periphery for a number of people would be my guess. And that you all are looking to sort of like change that and actually introduce it into what people are doing and create that category at the same time. That does seem like it really lends itself well to thought leadership. And then probably also some type of, you know, connection and partnerships with different startups, incubators, funds around the world. Do you have uh, sort of the thoughts on like the types of content pieces that you're going to create going forward? You don't have to share any of those. I'm just kind of curious if that's how you're thinking about it right now. Well, we do have some great blog posts, which again, another plug for our blog and our director of content would would uh, appreciate any reshares on social media as well. So we do have a lot of blog posts on topics ranging from, you know, talking about what it takes to be a country manager to compensation expectations and salary bans to just, you know, globalization 3.0 and what it means and why we think that this is what the future of work will entail. So there's that. Obviously, we um, are continuing to refine and 
improve our messaging as well as our partnerships all over the world. We do tend to partner with local leading accelerators, investors, and incubators in different countries because they are, we, we really rely upon our partners with their local knowledge to help us understand which companies, you know, basically great to work with. And in the future, as we scale, that that will be another challenge is how do you keep the quality of supply and demand really high. And I think we have a very good sense of how to screen for the quality when it comes to the go-to-market talents in the U.S. But as we expand the number of countries we work with, you know, there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all way to screen and filter and assess the those those companies. So, you know, that will also pose an interesting challenge, but I think a lot of other thought leadership of, you know, how to really measure success or how to really analyze and evaluate opportunities in different cultures and countries. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I'm thinking about, I'm assuming that when you do content, I think you said early on that it's not just in English necessarily. So if you create a piece of content, you have to think about how to produce it in, I don't know, multiple languages at once. Is that right? So it's sort of like from the beginning, you all are uh, translating all the content and thinking about the international and multi-language distribution of the content. We are not necessarily every single content, but we we do translate a fair amount of it. And also, you know, there are different and parallel internets. So for example, there's no such thing as SEO for Chinese clients because Google is blocked and most of them wouldn't be reading content in English anyway. So we have to use um, WeChat and other social media accounts in Chinese that are specific to China for that market. And so, you know, there's just a lot of different go-to-market strategies that are required for localizing in different countries and having a knowledge of those countries and having, you know, some insights into them is going to become increasingly valuable, not just for us, but also for other companies that are expanding into those markets. And so I think that we would have future thought leadership that can go in multiple directions. So not just helping overseas companies entering the U.S. market, but helping, of course, American, Canadian, Western European companies better understand their counterparts and the companies they wish to do business with in those markets. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. You just reminded me of my attempts of working on not SEO, but sort of in Korea, the dominant search engines, Nader and Dom, work very differently from Google. And so developing that capability to be able to work in multiple markets from the very beginning is a huge skill set. It, it takes a lot of time and it's not easy to do and it takes a lot of market knowledge. So if you all are able to do that at the beginning stage, like that's a very strong competitive advantage that, that's just hard to copy and make up. So that's impressive. Thank you. Yeah, uh, maybe kind of last question on this, but you know, what is a, a strongly held hypothesis you had in the beginning of starting Alaris that you've changed your mind on? Like, what's something that you've learned that turned out to be different than you expected? I think that at first, I just assumed that in order to really go abroad, a company had to be a bit later stage and had to already be, you know, super well established in their home market and kind of the market leader. And I I have since realized, and perhaps I should have known this earlier because there are a lot of examples of it, but you don't have to be the market leader in your home country to actually be very successful globally. And one easy example is that TikTok actually is much more successful outside of China than it was in China, um, especially in the initial stages. It just had, you know, faster adoption, more engagement, et cetera. So we're, we're also seeing that many companies 
can explore going global and can do so in a much more time and cost efficient way if they work with us. And that can help them kind of parallel launch in the US as well as their own country and to kind of see from the data where the ROI is. And, you know, even if it's more expensive to do business in the US, every deal closed has much higher ACB. And so in the end, it actually makes more sense for them to build in one market, but actually to launch and to sell into another market. Yeah, actually, I just was listening to this podcast yesterday, and it was a founder of a company, and they created sort of a classified type company. And they launched in 140 markets at once in the beginning, and then identified the four markets where it was most successful and just focused on those four markets. And so it just would never have occurred to me like, okay, launch them all, see where you get traction and stick, and then focus on those. And it sounds like in some ways that that's also what you're enabling is the ability to parallel path a launch in multiple markets and make it much easier. So you can have a product in one country and rather than think, okay, I have to wait until I get big to do this. You're just making it so much easier that maybe a year or two from now, as you've expanded in multiple countries, you, you could just sort of help people launch in 10 different countries at once and see where they get traction to help them focus there. Exactly. Wow, that's a great example. I'll have to look at that company and what they did. Yeah, I'll, I'll send you. I'll send you the name of the company afterwards and sort of. But like, I was just really surprised because they like focus on these four markets and got to like a ten thousand person company over time. And it's just like never heard of this company because they don't focus in the U.S. and they launched in so many companies at once. It was just an interesting example. So I just want to thank you for your time, Joyce. I know we probably have to wrap up and go, but it's been great speaking with you. And thank you for telling me more about Alaris and what you're working on. Thank you so much, EJ. It's been a pleasure. Thank mm-hmm. you.